According to Tech World layoff tracking site layoffs.fyi, 288 tracked tech companies have laid off 87,749 people in 2023 so far, just a little over one month into the year. And in 2022, 1,042 tracked tech companies laid off 159,766 employees. That's a lot of layoffs, and although folks working in this jumble of loosely connected industries, which are generally categorized as tech companies because of how the market values their stock and future money-making potential, often buying shares in the companies at something like 10 to 20 or more times their current formula-derived value, rather than the 1.5 or 2 or maybe 3 or 4 times the value, as is common with non-tech companies like traditional automakers or security companies, or whatever else. Although folks working at such companies tend to make pretty decent money compared to those working at other companies because there's just more resources sloshing around in these spaces than in comparable non-tech identified spaces. Each and every one of these layoffs is still a potential tragedy for the person who was let go, sometimes with a few months severance, sometimes with less than that, sometimes with ongoing healthcare for a while, sometimes without, which in the United States in particular can be a serious problem for some people. This year-plus-long wave of layoffs, then, has been a slow-moving disaster for many people working in an array of corporate entities, making this a pretty widespread churn. And this churn could lead to some interesting, perhaps even positive, medium-term consequences, like freeing up more tech-oriented talent to work at often talent-deprived nonprofits and government organizations. But we still don't know if the bottom has truly fallen out of these industries yet, and we don't know for certain that these folks won't simply be scooped up by other tech entities, perhaps remaining on tenuous footing for a while because these layoffs seem to be ongoing as of the day I'm recording this. And for context, most of these companies are laying off fewer people than they recently hired, so there's still some excess from their 2020 levels in terms of new employees at this time. So there's more people available on the market because of these layoffs, but relatively fewer when looking at the overall numbers compared to a couple of years ago. The biggest wave of layoffs in terms of overall size has happened at Amazon, which fired around 18,000 people, at Google, which offed 12,000, Meta, which laid off 11,000 workers, and Salesforce, which fired about 8,000 people. Twitter, though, under its new ownership, it was scooped up by Elon Musk last year, has laid off by far the most people in terms of percentage of their total employee base, firing about 3,700 people so far, which is about half of the entire company's roster at the time he bought it. Apple is one of the few major tech companies to have avoided large-scale firings thus far, though CEO Tim Cook has said it's a possibility at some point, though one that they are hoping to avoid, a last-ditch sort of thing. In almost all of these cases, the folks in charge of these companies, and thus the firings, have cited changing economic conditions and a desire to trim the fat, basically, to cut expenses, going into a more tumultuous economic moment as their rationale. 
This justification has, in some cases, been rewarded by Wall Street, with plunging stocks tipping upward momentarily following the announcement of huge layoffs. So Amazon announced 18,000 people would be made redundant from their employee base, and their stock price went up for a few days, seemingly because investors liked the idea of those potential savings. Meta made a similar gesture with its firings, alongside statements that strongly implied they would be focusing on financial discipline in 2023, rather than throwing endless money at stuff that won't generate revenue for years, if ever, alluding almost certainly to their recalibration toward the metaverse, which has yet to garner any real fruit for their bottom line, and which has been generally derided as not a very good effort so far, and unlikely to add any positive numbers to their balance sheet in the near future. Hiding amidst many of these announcements, though, and garnering somewhat less press attention, but more financial world attention, is another line-item announcement that is almost certainly also bolstering these companies' balance sheets and sometimes their stock prices as well. And that's the suggestion, and sometimes outright detailed announcement, that the companies will be firing tons of people, saving a bunch of money, but then in parallel, spending some of that money to buy a bunch of their own stock. What I'd like to talk about today are stock buybacks, what they are, why they are controversial, and why they've been so popular with the folks running these sorts of companies in recent years. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled Stock Buybacks Race to Record $132 Billion Start as Companies Snub All Warnings. Tech companies are overrepresented in the publicly announced stock buyback scene right now, but they're far from the only corporations making such announcements as we wobble our way into 2023. In January of this new year alone, about $132 billion worth of buybacks were announced by public companies, which is triple the announced buybacks from January of 2022, according to data from Berenyi Associates. This blows past all historical records for buybacks, surpassing the previous highest ever level by more than 15%, and there's some suggestion that this wave of buybacks is at least partially responsible for positive stock market performance in 2023 so far, which has confounded some economists because basically, there are a lot of storm clouds on the horizon, a lot of bad and chaotic stuff happening in the world and in the regulatory environment. So by most indications, the stock market should be a graveyard, not a burgeoning scene of generally positive, money-slinging activity. Now to understand what that means, let's talk for a moment about what stock buybacks actually are. Sometimes called share repurchases or share buybacks, stock buybacks are fundamentally just a company buying up a bunch of its own stock, in practice removing that stock from the available stock market. This is one way a corporation that has additional cash to spend can invest that cash in a type of monetary asset. So Amazon can spend the additional money it has just sitting in its corporate accounts or debt that it has taken out on other companies, on acquisitions. It can spend it on R&D, which long-term can help it outperform its rivals and build moats around its various offerings. It can spend that money on tangible or technological assets, like warehouses or new software, or it can spend it on hiring new people. And that last bit usually relies on other investments as well, like more warehouses and better software. So those employee costs are not sunk costs. 
it's not always valuable just to have more workers on the payroll, because if you cannot earn X amount of dollars for each worker each year, your revenue generated per worker goes down. And that's not ideal. That's lowered efficiency and a slew of recurring expenses that you've just added to your accounting books. And investors really don't like to see those efficiency figures go down. Thus, in some cases, rather than investing in those sorts of things, a corporation might decide to use that money to buy up a bunch of shares of its own stock. This can have short and long-term benefits, but in the near term, it tends to fluff up the price of the company's stocks because the company is buying those stocks at market rate, which means there is suddenly a huge buyer of, for instance, Amazon stock. And that increased demand for Amazon stock tends to increase the price at which that stock is valued. This technique is sometimes viewed as an alternative to providing dividends to shareholders. And dividends are essentially cash payouts to folks who hold company stock. So if Amazon provided a dividend to all its shareholders of, let's say, 5%, which would be a nice high dividend historically, and their shares are worth $100 a piece, which is actually not far from their actual market value as of the day I'm recording this, I, as an Amazon shareholder, would receive $5 a piece from Amazon for each share I own when they distribute these dividends. And I can usually choose to plow that dividend money back into Amazon stock, auto-buying more shares of the company instead of getting cash, which typically has some tax benefits. But I can also just get paid that money as money. Stock buybacks serve a similar purpose to dividends in that they usually at least serve to increase the value of the company's stock. So while dividends will allow Amazon shareholders to increase the amount of shares they own by giving them money for free to plow into more shares of Amazon, which over time then serves as interest on that investment of buying Amazon stock, making it an increasingly appealing investment option in the future, buybacks kind of achieve similar outcomes via other means they increase the value of each share I already own. So rather than being paid 5% for each share I own, I might instead see the value of each of my shares in this company increase by 5 or 10%, which thus increases my net worth. I could sell those shares for that higher price, or I could, if I'm a fancy, clever money person, borrow against that paper value of my Amazon holdings, which is one way some wealthy people who make a lot of their income in this manner avoid paying certain taxes on their wealth. This option has the secondary benefit, too, over paying dividends, of essentially putting more stock assets, more shares, in the company's vault. So it tends to increase the value of stock share prices, but it also gives Amazon all these stock shares to sell at some point in the future if they ever choose to do so. This can allow them to bring the market price down at some point if they think it's getting too high and keeping investors away, which in practice would mean putting a bunch of those shares back on the market, which thus increases supply. But it also gives them a means of pulling in more revenue if they need to, selling those shares for the money, which could help them rebalance their books in beneficial ways. And that's something paying out dividends simply does not do. That is just money they pay from their vault to folks who own shares in the company, which incentivizes the purchasing of their stock, but it doesn't give them any further market powers, tools to use if they need to use them, like buybacks do. And those market powers really are the name of the game here. 
It's a potent tool in the clever CEO's toolbox. It allows them to artificially inflate the company's profitability on paper because the formula used to show their earnings per share becomes more favorable. It's the company's net income divided by the number of shares available that is generally used for this purpose. And when they soak up these excess shares by buying them back, that reduces that denominator number, making the resulting income per share figure look a lot more impressive, even though nothing else has really changed. It also, again, boosts stock valuation in the short term, and sometimes individual share value in the long term as well, though analysis by McKinsey done in 2016 suggests that the long-term impact is generally a wash. It doesn't really create any long-lasting value for anyone. It's mostly just a clever way of moving numbers from one section of the accounting sheet to another, which again looks really good when you're trying to make that balance sheet appealing to future investors. And if you're the CEO of the company, it is a great way to help your performance figures leap relevant hurdles. So if you need to hit certain numbers to get a large bonus, this is a tried and true way to make that happen because it momentarily fluffs the relevant numbers to help you get that bonus. The manipulatory nature of this approach, though, is part of why this tool, this approach to adjusting those balance sheet numbers, is so controversial. And stock buybacks were actually illegal in the United States and across most of the wealthy world for the majority of the 20th century, only made legal in 1982 under the then Reagan administration, which implemented some new regulations that basically said, okay, some of this is legal now. And that expanded to include more buyback-related activities and tools in subsequent years. That seemingly tiny change led to where we are today, with more than half of all S&P 500 companies, which are the wealthiest, on paper at least, and most monetarily successful companies on the U.S. stock markets, engage in stock buybacks, at least semi-regularly. About $6.4 trillion have been spent for this purpose on stock buybacks by such companies in the past 10 years alone. And on average, about $900 billion are spent on this per year, and that figure is generally trending upward. And lest you think this is some kind of shadowy, back-alley, behind-the-scenes sort of corporate witchcraft, Tech company Apple, a darling of the stock market and by some measures the most valuable company in the world, has bought back more than half a trillion dollars, about $582 billion worth, of its own shares. That has allowed CEO Tim Cook to stock up on bonuses for hitting all sorts of lofty monetary goals, but it's also allowed Apple to hit that incredibly high market cap valuation. The market capitalization just being a measure of a company's stocks that are available on the market multiplied by the stock's value on the market. The number of stocks times the price of each of those shares of stock. So while none of this is illegal, post-1982 anyway, there's a very good chance, a certainty, if you trust the assessment of companies watching this space and doing the sorts of analyses we rely upon to figure out what's worth what and why, that a whole lot of the financial figures we see tossed around by publicly traded companies are puffed up and manipulated in various legal ways. And while that may not seem like a big deal to the average non-financial world person, it does mean that in practice, we've got at least a low level, and possibly even a medium or high level, of intentionally manipulated stock price inflationary effects distorting these sorts of markets. 
and that can influence our perception of the activities and values of these companies, while also creating incentives for those in charge of these companies to do certain things and behave in certain ways that are not always aligned with bettering the company because their performance numbers are often tethered to stock market performance rather than other betterment-related variables. So in practice, that means they may not always do the thing that's best for the health of the company or the consumer experience, instead focusing on how to maximize the perceived value of the company that they're running, which may mean investing in buying back their own stock rather than keeping employees on the payroll, investing in new, better technology and research, or building and buying infrastructure that allows them to do their jobs better in the future, to make better products and services over time. One more point worth making here is that this type of approach doesn't always pay off as intended by the companies implementing large stock buybacks. Apple's done pretty well in terms of their stock price following buybacks, but U.S. airlines have invested about 96% of their total cash flow on buybacks in recent years, which is a staggeringly ambitious investment that maybe explains why the companies themselves are not doing great in terms of the services they provide, because that's the money they would otherwise spend on upgrades and maintenance. Despite that sacrifice of quality and corporate health in the pursuit of higher stock numbers, though, those buybacks did not translate to higher stock prices, which may be partially the consequence of their valuation collapse during the COVID-19 pandemic, but it also illustrates how this type of manipulatory intent can blow up in the faces of those who attempt the manipulation. Investment in infrastructure and employees probably would have resulted in better outcomes within this industry, though of course it's hard to say whether that would have been the case in the past few years as the pandemic really did throw a wrench in a lot of travel industry norms. Similarly, Meta bought about $48 billion worth of its own stock between mid-2021 and mid-2022, but it bought those shares for more than double what they are worth today, taking a $26.2 billion loss on investing in their own stock. That loss, again, probably wouldn't have been as substantial had the company invested in assets, people, software, R&D, etc., which could have bulwarked it against the trials and tribulations it would soon face and which would soon tank the company's seeming prospects, which in turn led to a diminishment of the company's stock value, at least in the short term. While this type of money-on-paper manipulation can sometimes inflate a company's seeming value then, this is a balloon that can also be popped by concrete reality. And that seems to be part of the issue we face today, not knowing which companies are artificially puffed up and to what degree, and which companies are actually well-armed to face the tumultuous economic climate we face in 2023. And for what it's worth, there's a very good chance nothing will come of this because this has come up before and nothing came of it. Some governments, including the U.S. government, are beginning to drop hints that they are interested in possibly re-regulating and maybe even making illegal some types of stock buybacks following a huge wave of them within U.S.-based fossil fuel companies in particular. So that could lead to nothing that could shape the next several years of regulatory wrangling over this topic. But in any case, this is being noticed by people in the regulatory space, and that could lead to CEOs of these companies tempering their use of this tactic in the next couple of years to avoid further scrutiny. But it could also lead to some kind of regulatory slapdown within that same period.
book I'd like to recommend today is called Talking Prices, Symbolic Meanings of Prices on the Market for Contemporary Art by Olaf Velthuis. This is a pretty heavy read in that it's written a bit more like a sociological treatise or research paper than it is a straight-up book. But it is interesting. It's interesting to me as somebody who has a very, very humble art collection and who is thus interested in how contemporary art in particular is priced, but also just from a sociological standpoint, which is the direction from which this author tackles the issue of contemporary art pricing, because of what these prices represent the symbols that they sometimes are, the things that they communicate about what is valued and what's not valued, and the exploration through numerous interviews of how the people who set the prices don't even themselves really seem to have a set criteria above and beyond often very ill-defined gut feelings and senses about what other people might think about the art in question. And in that way, it's sort of a bit like playing the market, not by looking at the stocks and the companies behind the stocks, but based on what you think other people will want to buy, which pieces of news will cause people to buy, which pieces of news will cause them to sell. There seems to be a similar dynamic at play within aspects of the fine art world. Now, if you've ever been curious about how this space works and want to know more about some of the characters involved and even just some of the lingo that's used when discussing these topics, consider picking up a copy of Talking Prices by Olaf Velthuis. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find another one of my news-focused projects, One Sentence News, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get the email version at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.